Four and twenty blackbirds baked in a. Hey, What's I don't up? have any blackbirds. I got two for you. Those I mean, two look a little on the screwy side. Well, they'll definitely give you the bird. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penny and James got a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kind of Sorta Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast. And we are once again in the realm of theatrical cartoons with another new studio to this podcast, Terry Tunes. They actually lasted quite a while. They were uh, they started back in the black and white era. Indeed, with Farmer Al Falfa, pun intended. Yeah, though you can say a lot of their black and white output isn't as well actually you can say a lot of their stuff isn't as remembered but what is remembered of them definitely did not come out during their black and white area era their color era was definitely where their two most popular stars appeared absolutely and our story begins with the uh, namesake of terry tunes paul terry who started an animation in 1916 with bray studios where he created his first recurring character again farmer alfalfa and in 1921, or thereabouts, he founded Fables Animation Studios in partnership with Amity J. Van Buren's Film Studios, where they turned out a short-subject silent cartoon a week for eight whopping years, until Terry's refusal to convert to production with audio caused him to be fired. But no worries. He and cohorts Frank Mosier and Joseph Kaufman founded Terry Tunes practically next door to his old studio. Talk about Moxie! <laughs> For what it is worth saying, some of his uh, black and white uh, silent era cartoons, while forgotten now, were inspirational to other artists, namely Walter Lance, who would later create Woody Woodpecker, was uh, highly inspired in his early works by the uh, Aesop Fable cartoons that Paul Terry did. Terry Toons, of all the animation houses producing content for movie theaters, was often considered one of the cheapest of the bunch. And Paul Terry himself didn't care, famously stating, Let Disney be the Tiffany's of animation. I want to be the Woolworths. For what it's worth, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the thing. Uh, Terry, if you wanted a cartoon faster and cheaper, Terry Toons was the place to go. And that's kind of what got them, made them big in a way, because they did get hired for lots of projects because of that. Because not only were they cheaper, they were also faster. And even with that said, though, they're still by far not the worst studio I've seen in the theatrical era. should check out some of Columbia's stuff sometime. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when Pemmy says, uh, done cheap, he's not kidding. Paul Terry was tight-fisted with cash, frequently refusing to use licensed music since he didn't want to pay royalties and he was also notoriously slow to adapt to new ideas and technologies. He was also considered infamous from, well, the fact that he just outright sold his studio eventually, too. Yeah, he was definitely not in it for the art. Despite being one of the first animation artists to work in film, his studio and its output were often formulaic, and virtually an assembly line, with a new cartoon every two weeks, distributed by Fox, for which they sent them to whatever overseas market would have them for decades. 
Does this make kind of make Terry Tunes the filmation of theatrical cartoons? Possibly. Which would be ironic considering the future, but yeah. Now, for a time, despite all of this that we just discussed, Terry Toons managed to create a small stable of recognizable characters, most famously Mighty Mouse, but also including Dinky Duck, Dandy Goose, the Terry Bears, and today's subjects, the Talking Magpies, Heckle and Jekyll. One of my personal favorites, honestly. It's kind of sad that these characters have been completely, practically forgotten now because i remember seeing reruns of mighty mouse and heckle and jekyll's theatrical cartoons a lot when i was a kid on syndication yeah i believe i saw them on the usa network in some capacity but they were probably almost certainly syndicated at the time too their current all the terry tune stuff is currently owned by uh viacom who's done jack with it right I, it, which gets into one of the things that always frustrates me with streaming is the fact that it's like Viacom. You can put these on Paramount Plus. They're not doing anything right now. They're not. It's like even if they're not popular, somebody's going to watch it. <laughs> you know, it's not making you money now. Yeah, namely us oddballs making podcasts about them. I, I will say uh, one of the subjects that we watched today. I am actually highly surprised by how just clean the version of it on uh, YouTube was. I will have to say that. And when we say they're doing nothing with them, they're not even pursuing copyright claims with them. These cartoons are so easy to find on YouTube. Yep. See, in various versions at that, I will say there was an attempt to bring him back in the 90s, but I think either the late 90s or early 2000s, I don't remember where, but they... Viacom commissioned a pilot called Curbside. I don't know if I should wait until later to talk about that, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll save that actually for the next episode. But first, we really should get into who Jekyll and Jekyll are. They are two magpies that look identical, act identical, but they have one trait that differentiates each one. Heckle speaks with a Bronx accent, while Jekyll speaks with a British accent. It's powerful Pierre. I say, let's pick up his trail. Here's the thing about that, though. In the original shorts, they're never differentiated. To my knowledge, the differentiation came with what we're covering in our next episode, the Filmation Incarnation. The accents are the only thing that differentiates them in the theatrical ones. But the, in the Filmation ones, no, they, they practically decided to make them completely different characters. Mm-hmm. But we'll probably get into that more later. Interesting note, what's often considered the first Heckle and Jekyll cartoon is one called The Talking Magpies. Yep, which, January 1946. Which is funny, considering that technically doesn't have them in it. It does have two talking magpies in it, but it's a husband and wife, so... Uh, <laughs> now, Paul Terry liked the idea of a duo of identical characters, and in November of the same year, Heckle and Jekyll properly debuted with the short The Uninvited Pests. Yep. Um, Heckle and Jekyll is often considered by many historians as one of Paul Terry's best creations, if not his best creation. They are the second most popular. They are Mighty Mouse is by far the most known one, and probably the one that's gotten the most revivals but, or most attempted revivals, but most critics really did like Heckle and Jekyll, from my understanding. 
Yeah, and we'll get into comparing what we think about these two when we eventually do a Mighty Mouse episode, or series of episodes, since, you know, I like this format of doing a theatrical run first and then a TV version right after. Yeah, granted, we have more than one TV comparison to do of Mighty Mouse. Yeah, and they're both interesting, so that's going to be a tough call. But anyhow, over 20 years, 52 short-subject cartoons starring this duo were produced, and... Not only were they critically considered the best stuff, Paul Terry himself considered them the finest work the studio put out. So let's put that to the test as we take a look at two of the 52 short subjects, starting with the one Pemmy picked out, The Lion Hunt, directed by Eddie Donnelly. Definitely my personal favorite. And uh, just for the sake of uh, inter-episode continuity and simplicity, we'll be using the filmation delineation of which magpie is which. Well, I, I think it's always been like Jekyll is the the British one because Jekyll is considered a, is a variation of the British uh, last name Jekyll, as in Jekyll and Hyde, for example. Fair. You know, I, I in preparation for this episode, I was reading uh, passages from Leonard Malton's book of Mice and Magic and he seems to be of the opinion that there was no different, there was no official uh, differentiation back then. Let's see, I know there's one short where both uh, Heckle and Jekyll are fighting to get the uh, attention of a particular girl, and they actually do go into their houses, and one does actually say Heckle, and one does say Jekyll, and it goes with the voices. But that's probably the only case of that in the theatrical cartoons, to be honest, because they're rarely okay. even said by name. But anyhow, the Lion Hunt. To begin with, Jekyll is admiring pictures of lions provided by Heckle via a, a Viewmaster kind of like device. Ye old Viewmaster. My, yeah. isn't he a ferocious specimen? Do they have a name for that sort of thing? If they do, I don't know what it is. Me neither. I think this is the only time I've ever seen such a device. Yeah. Now, they decide they should try their hand at catching one for the Zoological Society. And, well... Right then and there, they're off. Quite quickly, as we jump cut to them in a car, then another jump cut to them in a plane, then in a boat capable of going up a waterfall, stopping on a dime in midair, and landing safely on the ground. My, things sure happen quickly in a cartoon now, don't they? <laughs> Certainly do, Jekyll. <laughs> nice, nice gag and yeah. response. To their credit, their timing on that, on each of those jump cuts are really good. And the yes. like, final landing. This is some of the best timing in a Terry tune I've ever seen. And it's a pace that's mostly maintained throughout the cartoon, I think. Yep. Especially in the next scene, where they're tiptoeing in a savanna as various animals are heard in the soundtrack. And Jekyll proceeds to shoot an elephant out of the sky. Hubba what? <laughs> and heck, that's not it. He no. then gets a giraffe, yep, which then gets followed by a piano <laughs> and a bathtub, and uh, oh, I forgot what you call those things, but uh, it's one of those dress mold type of things. Yeah, I I used to actually know what they're called because my uh, ex wife wanted one, and I ended up getting her one for her birthday. I think whatever they're called, Heckle admonishes Jekyll for to stop wasting ammo. While I'm picking my jaw up off the floor. You're not going to finish his entire life. It's like, stop wasting ammo on that stuff. You can get all you want of that in the hardware store. 
Yeah, I was too busy picking my job <laughs> off the floor, as stated, because for all of Terry Toon's reputation for pedestrian quality cartoons, this is all just so random! <laughs> Anyhow, Jekyll shouts out, Are there any lions around here? Yes! Yeah, four of them pop out of the tall grass to shout yes. And then immediately go back behind it. So, Jekyll's plan is to have Heckle be the live bait, and blow a horn when the lion is about to eat him. Eat me? <laughs> uh, another credit I can give them, I, uh, Heckle and Jekyll actually go through quite a few voice actors during their run, but the, the ones that are, the two voice actors that do them in both the shorts we watch are probably my favorite. They're really good at their line deliveries. Good. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, I do agree there. Although I wish I could tell which was which. <laughs> I'm having a harder time telling about the voice actors than the magpies. I, I do know that in like the very last shorts that Terry Toon did, they just strip made Heckle into like Jimmy Durante, practically. Mm. So but that happens way later. Yeah. So sure enough, here comes a lion, following the scent of food like a bloodhound. And he spots, sniffs, and licks Heckle, who then plays revelry as loud as he can, but Jekyll is sound asleep. That's some uh, hard sleep in there. Yeah, I'm envious. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Heckle tries to climb up a tree, but it turns out to be an elephant's trunk. He tries to escape. The elephant decides to inhale him into his trunk. So what does Heckle do? Well, he blows on his horn some more and makes the elephant sneeze him out into the lion's mouth. An interesting detail in this, though, that I actually thought was interesting was he, the elephant doesn't shoot him out of his trunk like you would typically expect a cartoon. He actually sneezes him out of his mouth. So I don't know why, but I thought that was an amusing detail or just interesting detail. Yeah. Either way, now Heckle is playing his desperate tune from the lion's tail. <laughs> yep. Which makes the lion understandably freak out. Fortunately, the lion gets stuck in between two branches, which... Sends him catapulting away and heckle out of his mouth. And where does the lion land but Jekyll's tree? And Jekyll promptly gives the king of the jungle a hot foot. Is this where Sika got that idea for Congo Bongo? Maybe. <laughs> heckle and Jekyll then make a run and jump into a trunk, which gets a nice little gag of the lion pulling on the limb that is... Uh, on the trunk to make it shoot down like it's a car jack, revealing the magpies. Yeah, and they're laughing at something on a page. And the lion tries to look and ask what it says, and boy does he find out... <laughs> that he's standing in quicksand. And his time in there is quicker than even the name quicksand implies. <laughs> that is some quick quicksand. He corners our magpies and then tells them this is the end. You know, I just realized this lion has kind of a snaggle push his voice to him. I wonder if he helped inspire Hanna-Barbera with that character. Maybe, but, you know, this was well after Wizard of Oz, so... This is true. Uh, maybe that was just what everybody thought of lions after that point. It's probably, it's at the very least, a link in the evolutionary chain. I also want to give uh, Terry Toons credit that they can draw some really doofy characters when they... Doofy antagonists. And, man, this is a doofy-looking lion. <laughs> yeah. Most famously, Dimwit the Dog. Uh, yep. So, as the lion says this is the end, 
Heckle and Jekyll are suddenly complimenting his acting, saying he should be in pictures, and they decide to do an on-the-spot screen test. Give him some makeup, get the camera ready. And it's a boxing glove trap. Because of course it is. <laughs> and our trickster protagonists hide behind a rock just as a skunk is walking by. Safe at last. Don't be half safe. I think this is one of the few times I've ever seen them really panic. <laughs> well, nobody wants to be sprayed by a skunk, let's be honest. Huh. So this gets them out of hiding and onto the chase, across alligator mouths and into a painted door gag. I, I like this painted door gag a lot. It's probably my favorite gag in this short because it, it's it's just really well-timed. He, he paints the door, hides behind it. The lion, like, hits it, swings the door around, puts Heckle or Jekyll in front of him, and the just the timing of the instant punch is just really solid and good. It's like, there's so many gags you think he's going to do, but you know, he just punches the lion and runs for it. <laughs> this is mostly a good sequence, but I will say the run cycle during the chase looked a little faster than the background was moving. This is true. It's still a really good punch, though. Yeah. But now Jekyll is hawking popcorn. Which explodes, and you think that on its own is the gag. But it turns out it's a means to make the lion feel guilty over killing Jekyll via the explosion. Heckle, like, accuses him of doing it on purpose, takes him to a mock court. They determine he's guilty. The lion freaks out and makes a run for it. He gets creeped out by Heckle and Jekyll doing a weird levitating dead body routine. Yeah. And the lion hides in a hollow log, which Heckle and Jekyll roll down the hill. And we get a drum roll, provided by the magpies. As they get out of cage to hopefully catch said lion, unfortunately, they're off by... Missed it by that much. I certainly did, Max. <laughs> As the lion instead lands on the, I guess you'd say, platform that they're holding the cage by, catapulting... Heckle and Jekyll into the cage where they're locked in. Yeah, and the, the lion provides his own drum roll. And as he carts them off, both Heckle and Jekyll are bugling for help. And, well, they're probably dead. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a logical conclusion. But I have to admit, this was a good cartoon that really picked up at the end. Lots of really good gags. Uh, some of the animations are a little wonky in areas, but for the most part, Pretty good. Lots of good solid timing in a lot of the gags. And when we return from this commercial break, we've got another Heckle and Jekyll short for you. In the meantime, this advertisement. The new adventures of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll will return after these messages. On the next Penny and James podcast, you could argue that one of the main reasons Heckle and Jekyll lasted as long as they did is thanks to Filmation reviving them in 1979 alongside Mighty Mouse on CBS. It seemed this anthology series was determined to answer the question, how many distinct voices can we squeeze out of Frank Welker? We may not find all of them, but we will take count while watching the Heckle and Jekyll segments in two weeks. And now, back to the new adventures of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll. Well, it's about time I started facing facts. Summer's almost over and we're going to be facing winter very shortly. That's You'll be facing winter. I live in Texas. 
you say that like it means anything anymore. Fair point. I mean, even even considering the disastrous snow we had one year, that's still a very, very, very rare occasion. But I decided to mentally prepare myself by selecting the cartoon Snow Fun, directed by Eddie Donnelly, with story by Tom Morrison. I still want to say that I'm still surprised by how just clean this copy on YouTube of this short is. It looks really, really good. Yeah. And there's a couple copies out there. Uh, the one I got looks like freaking HD DVD quality. I mean, they, someone had to have had like the actual, either the Masters or one of the film reels, because this looks really good. <laughs> So our cartoon begins in the Great North, where Powerful Pierre is on the loose, and... Wait, wasn't Powerful Pierre the name of a one-time Huckleberry Hound antagonist? Yeah, I think he was also the name of, like, one of the enemies that Mumbly goes up against, too. Hmm. Northwest Unmounted Police, I might add. Yeah, the, the Northwest Unmounted Police are dispatched. Two volunteers are needed, and the commander requests they step forward. Obviously, the corpse all stepped back, save for the nervous Heckle and Jekyll. Also, this is interesting in the fact that it's one of the few cases where they're uh, portrayed heroically and not as more uh, antagonistic, for lack of better words. Mischief makers. Yeah, because a lot of the shorts usually revolve around them trying to uh, either make a quick buck or get something for free or etc, etc. Mostly being like con artists or scam artists, but here they are in more of a heroic role for once. And it's also at this point I realized we're probably going to see a lot of what Tex Avery had done with Droopy in the cartoons Dumb Hounded and especially Northwest Hounded Police. Well, it's not like these guys are the only people to rip off some of those Droopy gags. Looks at the lovely oh. cartoon. <laughs> you know what? That makes me ambivalent. <laughs> Anyhow. Heckle and Jekyll are canoeing their way... Oh, wait, no. They're ice skating while going through the motions of canoeing. Unfortunately, this doesn't work out, because when they jump into an actual water with their canoes, they fall right through. Yeah. And they pop back up. They find footprints that they reason are Pierre's. So they pick up his trail. Literally. Literally. <laughs> yeah, no, no, really. They pick up the footprints. That's a good gag. That is a good gag. <laughs> And eventually they find Pierre, who is easily four times their size. But still, in Terry Toon fashion, is pretty doofy looking. (laughs) So Heckle goes into a Humphrey Bogart impression that he'll maintain throughout the short, even when in danger, such as when Pierre ties the duo to a stick of dynamite. All right, Pierre, I've got you covered, see? You're all through, washed up. There's no escape for you, Pierre. You pulled your last caper, see? Is it just me or does it look weird when you see a bird character that's displaying his teeth so prominently? A little bit. We got you, see? Yeah, Heckle's going through all the Bogart cliches as Pierre tosses them away and happily plays taps for their impending demise. However, he starts to hear an echo. Yeah, his pursuers are right behind him with one of them playing taps and the stick of dynamite is in Pierre's horn. Which, of course, promptly explodes. Of course. Pierre is not a happy Canadian. No. 
he grabs one of the magpies who vanishes into his heavy coat and then just vanishes altogether into the other magpie's coat. Because of course he does. Yeah. It's the, uh, the shell game routine. Pretty much. In response, Pierre uproots a small tree to use as a bludgeon. And now both magpies are hiding in that coat and throwing everything they have at an unfazed Pierre. And shooting cannons, boxing gloves, tomatoes. Roses? <laughs> Literally everything. Yeah. Pierre smacks the coat with the tree, and different combinations of Heckle, Jekyll, and their hats pop up after each smack. I hate to say it, but in some of these like poses, they look darn near adorable. <laughs> and this is followed by them popping up behind him, locking on a ball and chain to their quarry, which Pierre breaks. And now we enter the expected droopy territory. Yep. He goes skiing down the hill thinking he's gotten away from them because he's had enough of them. But nope, his skis are now Heckle and Jekyll themselves. Yeah, they pulled the switcheroo from uh, behind the frame. Or under the frame or wherever. I will say that despite this being some obviously inspiration from droopy, they did still come up with some pretty creative gags with this because... The, the ski gag is pretty good. That ski gag is a great start, yes. Though, uh, considering where his feet are, ouch. <laughs> That's all I have to say. Pierre collides with a tree and climbs up it, only for Heckle and Jekyll to be reading comics at the very top. Then he leaps into a canoe in a lake, paddles off, but finds Heckle and Jekyll are carrying the canoe once he gets ashore. He then jumps on this horse that... This is a long horse. A very rubbery horse. And the horse is not a horse, of course, of course. It's Heckle and Jekyll disguised as a horse. This wouldn't have happened if the horse was the famous Mr. Ed. <laughs> I, I do want to give a credit to the uh, horse animation. Despite all of the weird rubberiness, if you notice, during the entire time you see the horse, he's always dead-eyed to kind of hint that it is a mask. Okay, it, yeah. Yeah, I, ever, I see that now. It, yeah, it never blinks and it never changes its the the position of the eyes at any point. So. Either way, Pierre seals up the cave with boulders and rigs some more dynamite. He backs off, prepares the plunger, activates it, and I'll pop the magpies from two conveniently placed openings. Boo! <laughs> okay, and now... <gasps> Pierre dives off a cliff, swims in a frozen over lake, breaking the ice as he does, jumps into a snowdrift that turns out to be a convertible which races along a mountainside and becomes elongated suddenly only within that mountain shot and then back to normal right in the next shot. I've seen this gag done much more expertly elsewhere. He then jumps out, boards a train going all over the United States without much rhyme or reason all the way to Hollywood and buys a disguise only to find Heckle and Jekyll behind him in the same disguise. I, I, I gotta say, I that is some. I don't know where that train is going, but it is some craziness. I mean, it went from like, it went clear down to Dallas and then the Hollywood <laughs> via Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> it stops in Seattle and Peoria beforehand. Seeing all the sights in the United States, uh, and now Pierre turns into a canine jackhammer, burrowing underground and straight to Alcatraz. I have to give him credit. The jackhammer gag is pretty good. I also have to give them a geography lesson. Isn't Alcatraz in San Francisco and not Los Angeles? Uh, he, it, 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 they, they did zoom, up, uh, zoom out on the map. It could be going quite far. Hmm. 
I guess there's something to be said for abstraction. I mean, if you want a bigger question, I, I don't think the Canadian Royal Mounty has a jurisdiction to put somebody in Alcatraz. Very fair. Because that is indeed where Heckle and Jekyll catch him. And they paint stripes on his outfit and hand him a hammer to start breaking down rocks with. Yep. They always get their man. Yeah, and their man is so loopy as a result of this pursuit. He decides to break rocks on top of his head. What a blockhead. So Paul Terry knew he had a hit with these characters, and licensing abounded, including in comic books starting in 1951, where they'd be an infrequent but notable presence for a couple of decades. Eventually, Paul Terry would sell off his studio to CBS, if I remember right. Yeah, 1955, when he retired. And they made as much use of the property as they possibly could, with the Heckle and Jekyll cartoon show running for 10 years, starting in 1956. Eventually deciding to make their to use the Terry Toon studio to make new cartoons. Yeah. Now, by the way, Terry netted $3.5 million for the sale and left behind a studio filled with animators, wondering where their share in it all had gone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so studio management and directorship would change hands a few different times, with creative director Gene Deitch dropping the magpies in just about every other popular Terry Toon character for the two years he was involved with the studio. And that's a period I really want to look at for a podcast. Also got some of the early, uh, got some of the first creations of uh, later famous animator Ralph Bakshi. Yeah, when Bill Weiss would take over after uh, Deitch was dismissed. And Weiss would be the one to bring them back, with Heckle and Jekyll's last new cartoon for the studio releasing in 1966. In the new uh, Heckle and Jekyll cartoons they did, they changed the characters' designs to be far more stylized and far more simplistic. But I actually really like those designs. They actually look really stylish. They almost look like something you would see if, like... If they got revived for Cartoon Network in, like, the late 90s. Hmm. But even though 1966 was their final theatrical short, we would see Heckle and Jekyll on television again, yes, on CBS, in 1979. But that's another story for our next episode. To Uh, be continued. (laughs) Just for the record, I've actually been to Alcatraz. Oh. What was it like? It's actually really neat. Um, I went... My uh, ex-wife's family, when I was still married, we made a big trip to San Francisco, and we actually got to Alcatraz. It was really neat, because you had to, since it's on an island, you all fill in on a ferry, and it, our, uh, and the ferry, like, sails out to there, and you look around, and it's it's freaking gigantic. They even had a deal where you could go into a jail cell for a brief time just to see how freaking dark the, uh, what is it, the solitary confinement ones are. And yeah, I don't see I can understand how people got driven mad in solitary confinement because it you can't see anything. Damn. But it's here it's absolutely huge. Like there's floors among floors of jail cells. It is just it's amazing. And it's also crazy because there was areas that the people that worked there also lived on that island. So, you know, there was like houses that they lived at and uh, seemingly there used to be a market or whatnot and it's they'd have to have food ferried out there and it's it's actually really amazing okay it's kind of a pity they don't use it anymore but 
I guess at this point it's kind of not considered uh, humani- uh very uh, uh, viable. Yeah, yeah, or not a very humanitarian way to treat even criminals, all things mm-hmm. considered. So the market is no longer there then, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it, a shame, because I was thinking of stopping there for some breakfast cereal. <laughs> Maybe we can restock the shelves after so many decades. Yeah. But but whatever we get, let's make sure it's not something too shiny, or those magpies are going to come after it. <laughs> oh. On that note, good night, everybody. See ya! The opinion changed to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.